In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammie and Sandy. Hi, this is Cammie. Dan Vandervliet is our guest this week on Money Tales. Dan is the executive director of the Smith Family Business Initiative at Cornell University. Dan tells us that in 2009, when his mom died, she had a condo, a used car, and a few thousand dollars. She didn't have a will. Dan goes on to share that his older brother felt like he had done more to help their mom and he deserved her leftover resources as a result. This caused a riff in the family and the two stopped talking. Dan knew the break with his brother was about the relationship and not about the money. Dan shares that because he stands in front of the classroom and teaches about healthy communication in a family and not creating divisions along family lines, he never felt right because his own family story lurked in the back of his mind. This made Dan realize it was time to reconnect with his brother. He wasn't looking to blame. He was seeking to understand. A few months ago, the two got together and Dan is already starting to feel the healing powers of their conversation. Hi, this is Sandy. Here are three key Money Tales conversation topics Dan hits on in this conversation. First, wealth is relative. It's important to keep that in mind, especially in matters of family where the dollar amounts are often irrelevant because emotions can run very high. Second, when heading into important money conversations, consider writing down your thoughts first to help keep you organized and focused on what you want to say. And third, setting expectations for kids is key to family money conversations. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now, onto our conversation with Dan Vandervliet. We're thrilled to have another great Money Tales conversation with our guest today. Hi, Sandy. I want to share, Cammie, I was on a hike recently, and usually I listen to podcasts. And on this particular hike, I decided I wanted to listen to some music, and I opened Spotify, and I was inspired to search money. Oh, what'd you find? Money, 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 money. There are so many money songs, uh, many that I'm aware of know and love, but others that I didn't know. And it was really quite interesting. First off, just from a playlist perspective, um, there are a couple that really caught my eye. There was songs about money. That was the playlist? Yep, that was the name. And then the other one was Money Manifestations, which I really loved. Wow. Because I just love that mindset. So I I listened to many of these uh, songs. I just kind of kept going through. There's tons and tons of hip hop songs about money. There's some great songs going back to the 70s and 80s about money. Certainly, Hollow Notes, Rich Girl, Madonna's Material Girl, 
Donna Summers. She works hard for the money. <laughs> but Ariana Grande, I listened to her music with my kids all the time, but I didn't really pay attention to the lyrics of Seven Rings. That's a really good money song. There's a Destiny's Child song, Bills, Bills, Bills. That one stood out too. So it's a lot of fun. My point, I guess, is we spend a lot of time on Money Tales talking about the importance of speaking about money, having money conversations, but sometimes it can be fun to sing about money too. Yeah, I think this is great. I've already got these songs now in my head. Let's move on and introduce our guest today, Dan Vandervliet. It is really wonderful to have you on Money Tales. Welcome, Dan. Thank you, Sandy. Thank you, Cammie. It's great to be here. Please introduce yourselves and provide a couple pivotal moments that have taken place in your life that really impacted you and made you the person you are today. Sure. So Dan Vandervliet, I am the John and Diane Smith Executive Director of Family Business at the Smith Family Business Initiative here at Cornell University. In that capacity, I get to work with a myriad of individuals around family business. And uh, of course, family business often overlaps with wealth. I get to work with students from all over the world, uh, from all types of businesses and in all manner of cultures, but also get to work with many business owners or members of family business in that capacity, helping them understand their role in the family and business. It's really a wonderful job and a career that has provided me access to just some very fascinating people and understanding of many businesses and industries that I would have never experienced previously. I guess some pivotal moments in my life and in, in my progression, you know, one of them actually involves money to an extent when I was young and in high school and doing foolish things. Uh, I remember getting into a a pretty terrible boat accident. And I had taken my parents' boat without permission and got into an accident, which could have been actually much worse than it was. But the one thing my father did, you know, once he found out what had happened, I was required to pay for everything associated with getting that boat out of the water. And we never got it fixed, uh, but I had to get it towed back home. And at the time, that was, you know, probably about a thousand plus dollars. Didn't like my father at the time for it, but you know I think that was a, a pretty serious lesson that uh, I had to learn at the time, both financially, but then also it was at a pivotal point in my life in terms of taking responsibility and maybe not uh, partying so much and being aware that our actions have many consequences. And I would say the other pivotal moment in my life was coming here to Cornell. Previous to Cornell, I had been at the University of Vermont doing similar work with family businesses, but I had the great fortune to be the founding director of the Smith Family Business Initiative here, which only came about thanks to a $10 million gift from John and Diane Smith. They wanted to see more work done for family businesses. Oddly enough, not many schools really have active family business programs. Most schools love entrepreneurship. It's sexy, and uh, we all want to create a business and grow it and sell it and talk about how much money we sold it for. But sustaining a business doesn't often seem as sexy for, for many, even though it's really family businesses that are the backbone of the economy. So thanks to that gift, the Smith Family Business Initiative was created and and I had the opportunity to come here and help grow this program. And it's been uh, the gift of a lifetime to be able to do what I do. Mm, that's so powerful. Dan, would you tell us a little bit more? It was a really interesting story from your high school years with the boat. And I'm glad it wasn't a worse accident. And what your dad was teaching you. Would you share a little bit more about how money was handled in your home as you were growing up and whether you were having conversations about it and our values being demonstrated or talked about? I don't recall there being conversations about money. 
I grew up, I guess, in what we would call a typical middle-class family. Uh, I know I never wanted for anything. We never took extravagant vacations, but we did take, you know, family vacations, lived in a, in a good home. I think one of the, the lessons very early on that I did learn from my parents, and, and maybe this fits in with this discussion, is we were given an allowance. And this was $10 a week. But we were only given that allowance because on the on the refrigerator, there was a chart of chores. And there were four of us, uh, four children in our family. And those chores would rotate each day. Is it the wheel? Kind of a wheel. My dad did it. He was an engineer, so it was more of a grid, you know, an early spreadsheet is really what it was. Okay. <laughs> um, and it was, you know... The typical wash dishes, sweep floor, laundry, you know, you name it. On Friday of each week, we get $10 allowance. And I think at some point uh, later on, I think my allowance was up to $20, which was actually quite a bit back in the 80s. But for me, that was always, you know, a reward for work done. And for my parents, you know, it was pretty brilliant because basically, you know, they got all the work done around the house without the kids really complaining about it. It was not a practice we did with our children. And I'm not sure why. I think part of it was, you know, the kids always helped out when we asked them to. But uh, I think we never implored upon them that they had to do it. But that was for me growing up, always sort of put me in that, uh, I don't know, call it the worker mindset. You know, we can, you, you get rewarded for your labor. And uh, I think that was a good lesson to learn. And I was able to then spend that money how I saw fit. I bought a lot of music and or saved up for things like a bike or other things like that. So there weren't any parameters to the money? No, I was I was pretty free to do with it what I wanted, but my parents were also not the type to say, I want a new bike, and they wouldn't just go out and buy it. You know, there was gifts at birthdays and Christmas and things like that, but if I wanted to make a, a special purchase, that was on me to do that. And I, I still remember buying my first bicycle, probably as a middle schooler, and it cost, you know, at the time, maybe $150 or so. And I was really proud of that because between both working as well as saving up sort of the chore money, the the allowances that put me in that position to do so. So Dan, you're building up these financial skills as a young person. Let's fast forward to the boat accident. You're sounds like hosting a party cruise of some sort and you, you get into an accident. Tell us what it felt like when your dad said, hey, you have to pay for this. And Based on your savings at that point or however you were bringing in money, what was going on in your mind? Can you remember? Yeah, I mean, first, there's the trauma of having the accident. Unfortunately, nobody was seriously injured, but there, there certainly were some injuries. So, you know, you're sort of in that mindset. And part of you just wants to be comforted by your parents. And not that they didn't comfort me, but I remember having that conversation with dad. It was This was an extravagant thing that dad had bought for the family. That was the one special thing that he actually spent some money on. And it was something that we all enjoyed. But by this point, I was 16 years old. I was working in a restaurant and hanging out with an older crowd, which is what precipitated us going up to the lake in the middle of the night without permission from my dad to use the boat. You know, it's all, all the classic silly things we do as, as teenagers. So having that conversation with him that, you know, first I had taken this boat without permission, that the boat was essentially destroyed and, and in the process and sunk to the bottom of the lake or we got it to shore first, but then it sunk while it was at dock. And he just, you know, without batting an eyelash is, well, you're going to have to pay for that, you know, boat to get out of there and you're going to have to pay for that boat to get back here. And I sort of expected that. That was my dad. You know, it was always about responsibility and, you know, there was no sort of arm around the shoulder, you know, sorry about this, son. We'll take care of it type thing. It was, uh, I had done something pretty bad and there's a consequence to pay for that. And 
you know, as much as I probably didn't like it at the time, I look back on that now and I know there's been similar lessons with my children where as a parent, you provide as much as you can, but there are limits to what you will do. And then, you know, there's a point at which you say, okay, well, this is on you at this point. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Dan. I think that's an important lesson, especially as we reflect on our lives and how we get to the spot that we're in today and, and how we're taking responsibility for our money decisions. So thanks for sharing that. As you moved on in life, what relationship did you have with money, you know, when you were moving on to college and, and into adulthood? College was on my own. You know, it's funny, it, it, sometimes the, the discussions that you have about wealth are the discussions you actually don't have. And what I mean by that is, you know, I knew I wanted to go to college at the time, but I knew that was nothing that my parents were going to pay for. So they weren't telling you that, you just knew from their behavior? Yeah, yeah. And part of that was just sort of the frugal nature of particularly my father, but also this sort of responsibility ethic of you're on your own. You know, even though that was a conversation that never happened, I guess I just felt like I wasn't going to ask uh, at that point. So getting through college was, you know, it was tough for sure, but I found a way to pay for it through loans and grants. But Again, I think that was a lesson that we have since passed on to our children. While they're not completely on their own, you know, the agreement with them is that, you know, we would split the cost. And, you know, I think that you have to have, you know, a vested interest in what you're doing. And in this case, with education, I've seen too many students, both during my time as a student, but also here. And you can tell they're not vested in it. And the results bear that out. Will you say more about that, Dan? It's such an interesting concept that someone, by putting skin in the game, they just care that much more. And there's a lot of different ways kids go off to school. You just share more. You've got your personal perspective and then watching your students come through the program. Yeah. It took me seven years to finish undergrad. And that was because for two years after high school, I took a break, saved money, ended up going to the University of Vermont, realized how expensive it actually was, had to take more time off so I could establish residency, save some more money. But I was committed to get through. So I think there was a lot of skin in the game, both in terms of wanting to finish, but also realizing this is a tough journey. So that having to kind of work while you're studying actually, I think, made me a better student rather than just having all the time in the world to study, which you know often leads to free time and partying and, and not studying. So I think that was sort of my skin in the game was find a way to make it through. But I think there is something to be said for skin in the game, you know, whether it's 100% or in the case, you know, with our children, you know, realizing that the cost of education has gone up dramatically and having some of the benefits that I get associated with Cornell University, they do have skin in the game. It's not a free ride. I think that's an incredibly important lesson for any parent or any student. I think there's a lot of ways you can do that. And the conversation and or the agreement is important in that regard. I like the arc of what you're saying. Um, when you were growing up in your household, there wasn't really these conversations about who was going to pay for what. It was understood. But now in these examples you've given, there's a lot more conversation happening. And I'm curious, Dan, as someone who speaks about money, not only to your family, uh, as you've just shared, but also in, in the classroom, what do you think are the most important components of money conversations? Honesty, definitely, and openness. Um, I, I think there's an acknowledgement that with money and or wealth, there is a, a responsibility that comes with it. So, you know, I get to work with many students who, frankly, come from very significant wealth. 
I've seen many of them are very well grounded. And I think I would attribute much of that to the education that their parents give them around the responsibility that comes with that. Granted, they have access to maybe tools and and education that maybe some others do not. But I think acknowledging that wealth does come with privilege. It does come with responsibility as well. For the most part, you know, the, the students that I work with, they really do try to downplay it in their lives here as students, meaning they don't flaunt it, you know, just because they come from a a well-known family or a significant business. That's not something they flaunt. If if anything, they they actually try to hide it and and live, you know, what we might call normal lives. Dan, what got you interested in family business? It really was kind of an accident. My career arc took me back to the University of Vermont after graduating there. I was working in continuing ed at the time, so what we would call non-traditional learners. I had worked with a number of business owners around what we now call exec ed. And frankly, uh, I had a good relationship with the dean of the business school at the time, and there was a small family business program there. And she literally said, you know, you know a lot of business people. This might be something good for you um, because the, the director had left. But What happened then, Cammie, is that I really found a groove, meaning this was 2003. You know, family business as a a field of study was still sort of new and fresh then. And it was something that that really appealed to me. I love the interpersonal nature of it. I love having the conversations like this about it, the ability to sit down with a business owner and have them share very intimate and personal things with you that they probably don't share with their own business peers, or sometimes they don't even share with their own family, at least at least to begin. It's sort of the conversations that come as a result and the ability to hopefully connect them with either other people or resources that help them understand they're not completely alone in this journey. Uh, and that just really sort of took root and flourished and had a great time at the University of Vermont first learning that as well as building the program there, which opened the door to the opportunity here at Cornell. Dan, would you share how your work impacts your personal financial life beyond the paycheck, but just in terms of conversations, insights you've learned from working with family businesses? I think it has. I mean, as I mentioned, you know, with our children, even though, you know, we change some things based on my experience, we do have more conversations about it, especially as they've entered into the college years. I think the one thing that I've realized as it relates to my work is that We use terms like wealth and we think of, you know, a big, huge pile of money. But wealth is really relative. You know, we can look at somebody else and say, wow, they're very wealthy. And then others can look at us and say, we're very wealthy. I think it's important to keep that in mind. And I I try to bring that into the classroom when I'm working with students, because especially in matters of family, often the dollar amounts are irrelevant because emotions can run very high. When those emotions are threatened and or harmed, the dollar amounts don't matter. And if I, if I can, I mean, I'll, I'll share an example from my own life. When my mother passed, there were not a lot of assets. There was a, a condo, uh, which really wasn't worth much. There was a used car, and there was a few thousand dollars in a checking account. But at the time, my mother didn't have a will. It was up to my brother and my my sister. My eldest sister had passed at that point. So it was just the three of us remaining. And my brother felt that um, because mom had either told him that it was all his or because he felt he had done more to help mom than, than the others, 
that he was going to take care of it. He was the remaining oldest child, and he saw it fit to claim ownership of the condo and claim ownership of her car and, and, and take possession of her checkbook. And again, this was a very small amount of money relatively. You know, this was not about the money. This was the relationship that was then harmed as a result. And I think that was very instrumental for me. And I use that example in class a lot. That Imagine if our family owned a $50 million business, and that was the case. Or mom just had much more in assets or wealth at that point. How the hurt would have been the same, but you know, maybe the outcome might have been different. And so I think that's important to keep in mind that often it, it can be very little things as it pertains to wealth that uh, um, often it, it's, it's underscored by the emotions that are attached to it and not the dollar signs. That's a really great example. Family dynamics are so interesting. And I'm I'm just wondering if you would share a little bit about how that came down for you. I'm not a fighter, uh, I guess would be how I would respond. So my defense was cut off. And this happened in 2009 and really just stopped talking to my brother. That was, you know, 13 years ago now. There's been some movement in that relationship uh, very recently. And part of that is due in part because, you know, I stand in front of the class and I teach about healthy communication in a family and not creating divisions along family lines. And I never felt right knowing that this story was in the back of my mind. And just a few weeks ago, I had an opportunity to visit with my brother. It took a while to get through to him via text, but he finally responded. Uh, And we were able to spend uh, a weekend together at his home. And it was healing in that I had made the effort to reach out to him. I'm not confident that if I hadn't done that, he would have ever reached out to me. And While nothing groundbreaking happened in the time that we were together, I think there was some healing of self, knowing that I had made the effort. And I think there was at least a, you know, I still care about you. And, you know, I'll cite a book uh, by another Cornell professor, Carl Pilmer, called Fault Lines. I think um, it's a great book for any family. And he deals with families that have these, these rifts in them. And very often the rifts are attached to some wealth type event. Um, somebody passing like this situation, often there's a family business element attached to it. But he talks about healing in that book, uh, especially when there are these rifts. And there, you know, there's a few key points that he makes in there that healing often happens most for the person who makes the effort that we need to consider the side of the other. And, and when I did that, I realized, you know, my brother had his own challenges. He had his own wealth issues and his family uh, had gone through a few tough relationships at home. And so, you know, he needed some healing as well. Don't look for apologies. And I did not. And that was not the, the purpose of trying to visit him and, and drudge up all of these things that had happened that really there was, you know, an eye towards moving forward um, and kind of lower the expectation. We didn't have any great conversations together. It was sort of share a few meals and, and go do an activity together. But it was just good to be with my brother. I do love him. Uh, and that had never changed. So I think it was at least the acknowledgement that I'm here if you need me and let's not be total strangers anymore. Yeah, I love this story. And I want to thank you for sharing it. I think um, so many of us can relate to just that. And the story you shared of your family reminds me of situations I've had with clients that I work with. And there's a question that I've learned to use that's been very effective when things come up in the family. I find asking, well, how does this change your life to be an interesting conversation? Because it can really put the money aspect into the right place and it can allow someone to see that it isn't about the money at all. It is about the deeper relationships and and how we're relating to each other. And it can take some of the pressure off. So 
not the perfect question for every situation, but one that that I've found helpful. We need those icebreaker type questions to start the conversation. And then I would like to ask you, Dan, looking back now to 2009, if you could go back in time, would you have done anything differently? Yeah, I remember that moment. We were all together for my mother's funeral. Everyone had left and it was just the family. It was just my sister, my brother and I. And you know, here I am, the family business guy, thinking I have all the skills and tools to have a, an effective family conversation there. And when we tried to have that conversation, my brother shut it down very quickly. And I remember leaving the house and driving back to Vermont, uh, where I lived. And it was a long, quiet drive with my wife and, and children. And you know, my sister and I sort of processed a little bit, but we never really went back to Scott. I think our reaction was, this isn't a big chunk of money. It's not worth it to try to fight or take legal action. And I'm not sure we would have if it was much more. But what would I have done differently? I'm not sure it would have changed the outcome, but I think maybe capturing my thoughts more effectively in writing and sharing them both with my sister and my brother at the time might have helped. Maybe it just even helps you. Uh, Yeah. And I'm a better writer than a talker anyway. I think it just allows you to organize your thoughts and get them in order rather than in a family meeting like that, which can get emotional. And especially in that situation, that was not what I was prepared to hear. Like, you know, when you just get completely shut off, just didn't really have a comeback for that. So maybe collecting myself and at least, you know, similar to making the effort to go see him recently, at least that letter is sort of the effort to say, here's what I'm thinking now that I've had time to really process this. And and I think you have to be careful with that because sometimes those letters can get just as emotional as a conversation. So sort of taking all the same things that, you know, I went into the meeting with him a few weeks ago of not looking to blame. I, I you know, just want to understand what why this is the action you're taking. Here's my side of the story. Here's what I think is either fair or considered normal in a situation when somebody passes and there's not a will. So, you know, not to use that as sort of a a weapon, but more as a, a conduit to hopefully a conversation that could happen. Dan, what are your favorite money conversations? One of them is how we use it for good. One of the things that I did during COVID, you know, we're all sort of hiding in our homes, right? And we're not supposed to, um, you know, we're supposed to social distance from everyone. And I did a little sort of fundraiser in our community. And, a, and I would organize what I would call these soup and brew hikes with my group of friends. So we could hike, we could technically stay socially distant. I would make soup and people would bring off in their own brews. I would ask for donations and be able to collect that money. And over the course of two summers, we raised, I think, close to $3,000 that we gave to our, our local soup kitchen. And so that was a good conversation to have with the kids, you know, that here I was doing something that I liked doing, but could also in that process with my friends and, you know, people I knew be able to raise money, you know, not a, not a huge amount, but we also live in a very small town. So, so it actually had some pretty good impact there. So I think the conversation that, you know, I do love having with the kids and even with my spouse is, you know, how can we have fun doing things like that? And we've done some other things for that soup kitchen, like a Super Bowl Squares fundraiser that actually raised, I think, about $1,000 for Super Bowl last year. So those are fun. You know, those are, they were fun things to do, but also fun to say, you know, how can we have some sort of impact? You know, we're not a, we're not a wealthy family per se, but uh, I think it's relative to our situation, what, what we're able to do. Hey, Dan, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? Probably with my daughter, Kate. She's a student here at Cornell. And, you know, it's funny, her 
path through college is, is looking very similar to mine. Uh, you know, it took me seven years from the time I graduated high school to when I finally got my degree because of a few starts and stops. And she's going through the same. Some of this was due to COVID. Some of this has been due to her own sort of trying to figure out what she what she wants to study and having to sort of change majors mid-course. Right now, she's, she's taking a, a semester off. And I think the conversation with her is, if you re-enroll per our agreement, you know, we will support you because you'll be in school at that point. But if you do not, you know, you're on your own. And, you know, she's 23 years old. You know, she has jobs here in town, but, you know, it's incumbent upon her to pay her rent, pay her expenses. And you know, we've provided her with a car, which is an old car, and it could break down at any time, you know, and at that point, you know, it'll be on her to fix it. And uh, and that's the conversation. And I do ask her from time to time because she's a very independent young woman and, you know, doesn't come forward with, with a need. How's your financial situation, Kate? And because, I, you know, I am concerned, you know, she is working, but Rent is expensive, as is cost of living and all those groceries and things. And so, uh, and, and she's always like, good, you know, I've got money saved up and I can make it through to next May paying the rent that I'm paying now. I've become more comfortable with those conversations with her over time. So I do think they take practice. I never want to pry, you know, because she is an adult. I, I don't want it to be like, you know, I'm offering help or trying to help save her. But, you know, at the same time, I just want to make sure that she's in a good place. And if there is something that we can help with, we're in a position to do so, not necessarily financially, but other ways. So I think that's an ongoing conversation with my daughter. Those conversations take practice. What a great, important message. Totally agree. Like anything you get good at, it takes a lot of practice. Sounds like a wonderful conversation that you're going to have. And we wish you luck with it. Thank you for sharing your life, your being a student of life and sharing those stories with us, as well as your role at the Family Business Center there at Cornell. Really appreciate you sharing so much with us, Dan, on Money Tales. Well, this has been great. It's always great to talk about. I don't get an opportunity to do so. And uh, these are conversations that do need to happen, and they probably don't happen enough. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, Share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.